Welcome in, listeners, to for episode 130 of the Slump Podcast. I'm your host, Juju Talk Sports, joined, of course, by Kyle Lebert. On today's episode, Kyle and I talk about Kevin Durant's injury. We talk about Frank Vogel and his status with the Lakers. We talk about Mike Mayock getting fired, and we rank our possible Super Bowl scenarios. But before we get into that, folks, I need you to leave a like on this video. I need you to leave a five-star review. I need you to subscribe to our channel, and I need you to sit back, bust a slump, and enjoy the episode. Kyle, what do you think? Perfect time to wear the Celtics green after such a monumental trade. Again, bull bull out of Denver. Am I right? <laughs> oh, my goodness. What a fantastic day. I think Bryn Forbes was also traded. The, the legend Bryn Forbes, who had six three-pointers in a playoff game last year against the Miami Heat. Yes. Getting set for the trade deadline less than a month from now, where every team will have the unexplainable urge to acquire Harrison Barnes. We are getting set for that stage to kick off very soon. Why are you a Celtics fan, by the way? Because there's not much of a connection to this. Like, I get Texas Longhorns. 49ers is relatively West coast like boston celtics is just kind of random this is the one time in my life where bandwagoning was a legitimate thing for me the big three had just assembled there was this espn cover that i always gravitated to because i used to have a subscription to espn the magazine as a kid and it was essentially the boston celtics leprechaun just beat up pummeled and in dismay as the celtics had a nba worst record the season before acquiring the big three so i always kind of gravitated towards it and to see the come up was really cool and I stuck with them even through the Rajon Rondo years. I stuck with them through IT. I stuck with them through Kyrie. And now in this hell that is, should we split up the Jays or not? That's kind of why I'm a Celtics fan. Again, in New Mexico, you kind of have to ad-lib your teams. It's not as simple as I'm geographically close to this team. Yeah, but a lot of situations like that, you can find someone relatively close. But Phoenix Suns would have not been a good pick. You picked better in doing Boston Celtics than you did going for Phoenix Suns, I will say that i'll say the history too i mean the history of the franchise too was also a good catch for me obviously yes. i gravitate towards the 49ers they have a great history as a franchise the san francisco giants i just love watching barry bond so celtics yeah it's kind of a unique thing and then i also joke with my hockey team even though i don't really have a hockey team because i don't watch a whole lot of hockey i say i'm a bruins fan just so i can have two in the bay and two in the harbor in the harbor i like that i like that it makes sense in doing your analysis and then you pick not a great college football team to to root for but still it turned out all right for the rest of your professional sports teams i will say it's it's funny to have that with the long illustrious history of one championship in 35 years to enjoy as a boston celtics fan hey we got bull bull now man i just love acquiring seven footers with foot issues that is yeah, the key to any franchise's success don't you know yeah danny ainge uh, is still living on with the boston celtics because he says anyone who was in the 2019 draft class no matter how good or how bad will take them. As long as they were in the 2019 draft class, they, they will be a member of the Boston Celtics through thick and thin. Yeah, it just seems like mostly a salary dump there. PJ Dozier, also a guy they're acquiring that's injured. They're just trying to make some moves to get under the luxury tax and they're not really buyers. They're not really sellers. The Celtics are a Ningba as we head into the trade deadline. Though there are other teams too that are questionable as far as what they're going to be doing heading into the NBA trade deadline. Certainly more interesting ones that actually have 
championship aspirations. There's the Los Angeles Lakers, and then there's the Brooklyn Nets. And the Brooklyn Nets are in the news this week because Kevin Durant has a sprained MCL that will sideline him up four to six weeks. And a fun stat, ever since the big three got formed out there in Brooklyn, you realize they have only played 16 games together. Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, and James Harden. 16 games together on the court. That is insane. They've been together for over a year. When James Harden was first acquired, that was when Kyrie just went MIA on them. And then right as they started getting into the playoff run, Kevin Durant popped the hamstring, James Harden popped the hamstring, Kyrie messed up his ankle. Here we are in 2021, 2022 season. Kyrie has his vaccinations battle. And now here we are with Kevin Durant and a knee injury. Does this hurt the long-term projections of the Brooklyn Nets for them to not really have any continuity? I mean, 16 games in almost a year of playing together. I would like to say the funniest part about all of this is that if not for Kevin Durant having one shoe size too large, they're going to the NBA championship through all of that because just by having Kevin Durant on your team, you already have a chance of making it to the finals. It's weird how that works out. It's like the only move that actually makes an impact in the NBA in the middle of January is injuries. Like injuries are the only thing that matters in doing NBA analysis until you get close to the playoffs. Like everyone tried to convince me the Chicago Bulls were a legitimate championship team and now they're just getting blown out by all the actually good teams as they fall to like fourth in the conference. We know who the good teams are. We know who the championship contenders are because we know who the best players are. And Kevin Durant getting hurt is like one of the only five players getting hurt that actually changes all of the math on the NBA standings at this point. So yeah, this really stinks for Brooklyn. It doesn't matter what seed Brooklyn gets, but the fact that Kevin Durant has another injury is something that is noteworthy and newsworthy because the entire construct of that team relies on Kevin Durant being healthy and being able to be Kevin Durant, who puts up 49 point triple doubles against the Milwaukee Bucks with no James Harden and no Kyrie Irving. So yeah, I think this really does matter. I know he's, it's not like they're projecting him to miss three or four months and it's not like a catastrophic injury, but yeah, this is a moderately big deal because Kevin Durant being out is DEFCON 9 for the Brooklyn Nets, who, as we found out this week, might not be together much longer. Little pushback here. Chicago is still actually the number one team in the Eastern Conference as of this time in the standings on January 19th, as we record. But the Brooklyn Nets, one injury can lead to multiple injuries. And it's not like the other two guys are sure things to not get injured themselves. If we already know that Kevin Durant is out four to six weeks with more minutes on Kyrie, with more minutes on James Harden, and both James Harden and Kevin Durant were top five in minutes anyway, doesn't that expose them a little bit more for the possibility of injury? And not to mention, Kyrie Irving is still not playing home games and it doesn't look like he's going to be playing home games the rest of the season. So we act like Kyrie Irving's back, but he's not really back. And if Kevin Durant has this injury or another injury related to this injury linger into the playoffs, then you're just down to James Harden then? Talk about a potential for failure if you're the Brooklyn Nets in assembling this team, hoping you can win a championship and then falling on your face because of injuries doing it. It's so amazing that if the Golden State Warriors had just not not actively hated each other. They could have won championships for like eight years straight in the NBA. They could have dominated that sport for as long as they wanted with Kevin Durant and Stephen Curry being on the same team together. It's it's really fascinating because now you have this weird fracture of the NBA where we don't have a super team anymore in the sport. The sport is more interesting when there is a super team, a once in a lifetime opportunity for Kevin Durant to join the Warriors just because the NBA's 
salary cap went up because of the new television contract allowed the Warriors to build that team together. And now that all of the stars are on different teams and you don't have two of the generational talents in the NBA on the same team at the same time, it makes it so that one injury actually does change the math here. Not to Kyrie Irving, even though that Kyrie Irving refusing to get vaccinated matters. But like we were saying back in November, like they're still the best team in the Eastern Conference with or without Kyrie Irving because Kevin Durant and Giannis are both generational superstars and James Harden is better than anything that the Milwaukee Bucks can put forward. And those are the only teams that can compete. The Milwaukee Bucks and and what I presumed at the time was the Lakers and now is looking more like the Warriors and maybe the Suns, probably not the Suns, but maybe the Suns can compete with Brooklyn. So they can live without that, but they can't live without Kevin Durant, which again, I'm taking a long time to say something very simplistic. It's like without Kevin Durant, the Brooklyn Nets are ridiculously screwed. And yeah, Kevin Durant's now in his third year in Brooklyn. They could win it this year and silence everything. But the fact that Brooklyn hasn't won a championship and there's the possibility James Harden might leave this offseason now, which is incredible because it feels like he just got here 12 months ago. I think it was 12 months ago last week he got to Brooklyn is kind of interesting to think about because Brooklyn only exists because Kevin Durant decided he didn't want to play for the Warriors anymore. And with or without a championship doesn't make it a success or a failure. It's just that Brooklyn compromised as a front office and an organization, all of their morals and all of their principles to make this happen. They gave all of the power to those players, let them essentially run the organization just for the chance to win that championship or at least compete for that championship. And yeah, if in two years they don't get it, kind of shocking, but also kind of shocking that they might only get a two-year run with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and James Harden together. What would be a bigger failure in Nets franchise history? The KG Paul Pierce trade in the early part of the 2010s, or if they failed to win a championship with this iteration of the Brooklyn Nets? I think the stakes are probably higher on this one because as much as that Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, Jason Terry trade looks really, really bad in hindsight. Brooklyn did really, really well for themselves. Like Sean Marks essentially started with nothing. He lost the draft pick that became Jason Tatum, the draft pick that became Jalen Brown. I think the draft pick that became Terry Rozier might have also been in there, but Colin it, Sexton as well was involved in that mix because the Celtics. That's right. Yeah. For Kyrie Irving. That's the one I was thinking of too. Yes. The Colin Sexton pick also going away. They, they gave up a lot in that, but ultimately I, I've mapped this out before is like, because they didn't have any draft picks, they were willing to get draft picks by taking on other teams, terrible contracts. So they took on Demary Carroll from the Toronto Raptors and that turned into Chris Levert. They took on Mozgov's contract from the Lakers and got D'Angelo Russell in exchange for that one. And then D'Angelo Russell ultimately flipped into Kevin Durant afterwards because Durant decided he wanted to play there and they put themselves in the cap position to do that. So they turned nothing into James Harden is the way I'm going with this. Like they flipped another player to get the pick that became Dezana Musa, who is part of the trade going the other way to the Rockets. And they got uh, Jarrett Allen as another one of those salary dump picks as a pick swap with the Celtics. So one of those picks, they pick swapped with the Celtics and got Jarrett Allen and then traded Jarrett Allen to get James Harden. So basically their ability to get James Harden was all of the work that they did during those four years that they stunk. They put themselves in a position to flip that and all of their draft picks for the next seven years to get James Harden. And then Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving to 
decided they wanted to go there. So I'm going to say not winning a championship with this team is probably more disappointing only because the stakes are larger than, oh no, you don't get Colin Sexton, Jason Tatum, and Jalen Brown, which stinks. But as we're seeing right now, would kind of be like the sixth seed in the Eastern Conference or the fifth seed in the Eastern Conference. I agree with that. Just given you have Kevin Durant, who's a top five player now and could go down as a top 10 all-time NBA player. James Harden, who's going to be on that fringe of the all-time list, but certainly has been a former MVP and does have that potential. And then Kyrie Irving, who is a top 25 player in the NBA right now, whereas Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce at that particular time, anyone who's watching the Celtics could tell you they're cooked, they're done. I don't know why the Nets are making this trade, but thank you for doing it. We appreciate it. (laughs) The reason they make the trade is because they had a Russian oligarch as their owner at the time. A mafioso from Russia bought the team and said, well, in Russia, there is no salary cap, so I can buy whatever players I want. And (laughs) went came to the NBA and was like, what good are draft picks when I can get whatever players I want and then totally destroyed the organization and sold them eight years later. See, I think this proves a point, And this goes back to our Eddie DeBartolo talk last week. Italian mob versus Russian mob, way better owners in professional sports. Just putting it out there. If we're going to put our hierarchy of mob owned professional sports organizations, Italian mob ownership trumps the Russian ownership. Yeah. This is, it's the same guy who, when he first got there, was like, okay, let's get stars. Who are stars? Let's get Darren Williams. Let's get Joe Johnson. Let's get Kevin Garnett. Let's get Paul Pierce. Let's get Brooke Lopez. He just said, all right, let's put together a super team and win a championship and say to hell with the future. And it didn't work out because it didn't work out. Like Darren Williams wasn't as good as we thought. And uh, up until I think last year, they were still paying Darren Williams's contract. I think they bought him out. We're still paying his contract up until last year. And yeah, just Russian mob boss was the reason that that all happened. It's a really fun story. I hope they make a 30 for 30 on it one day. I can't wait till the Yakuza could buy a team. Let's talk about the Lakers though. Let's talk about them and what they got going on. So we talked about Black Monday last week. For Frank Vogel, it could be Black Monday. It could be Black Tuesday. It could be Black Wednesday. It could be Black Thursday. It could be Black Friday. It could be Black Saturday. It could be Black Sunday. Because Frank Vogel is on a game by game basis, according to recent reports. And it seemed like it was dead man walking coming into the year anyway, because when you're a coach of one LeBron James, you don't tend to have a long lifespan coaching that particular franchise at that given time. So Frank Vogel, credit to him, he at least walked away with a championship out of it. But how much longer do you think that this is going to go on? When would you expect this announcement to go down? If they're already doing game by game analysis, that means it's inevitable that he's going to get fired. It's just, you know, whenever they decide that they've had enough, or I guess whenever LeBron James has decided he's had enough or whatever the reasoning might be, I don't know exactly how this is going to work out. No one really thinks of Frank Vogel as this like game changing coach in the NBA. Like, yes, he has results, but also when he played with terrible players, his teams were terrible. And when he played with great players, his teams were great. And when he played with pretty good players, his teams were pretty good. Like that seems to be the thing with Frank Vogel is that he's a coach. He has a scheme, but when he has LeBron James and Anthony Davis, he wins a championship. When he has Paul George and Danny Granger and Lance Stevenson, he makes a conference championship. And when he's on the Orlando Magic, he had the worst record in a two-year stretch of any coach in the NBA. So yeah, Frank Vogel's pretty interchangeable. I don't know what makes a good coach and what doesn't in the NBA. It's really hard to do analysis on this because the league is so star-driven where one day Budenholzer is going to get fired and then they win a championship. And I still would have fired Budenholzer after winning the championship. I would have tossed him off the championship parade boat, just like the scene in Family Guy where they're tossing everything off the boat. Like, Bye. Yep, exactly. 
exactly. I would I would have just tossed Budenholzer out after that, but apparently three year extension because Giannis won a championship because Giannis had that ridiculous block where with a broken leg, his leg was looking like a flamingo, and he was still had one of the most amazing finals we've ever seen. And now Budenholzer gets an extension. Like I don't know what makes a good coach in the NBA. I know Greg Popovich is a great coach, but when Greg Popovich doesn't have great players, his team suck. This is something we're learning now is that Greg Popovich and that whole organization absolutely botched the Kawhi Leonard situation. And it doesn't make Greg Popovich any more or less of a coach. It just means they messed that one thing up really bad and set the franchise back five to 10 years because they alienated and isolated Kawhi Leonard and thought they were bigger than the star when no coach and no team is bigger than the star player. So Vogel, it's pretty incredible that he got the three years. Like Vogel was not popular when he was first hired. There's always that image of LeBron James just kind of sitting in the back of his introductory press conference, just like kind of not being interested at all because Vogel was doing get up before getting hired as the Lakers head coach. Vogel won a championship that first year. And, you know, congratulations to him for getting that done. It bought him whatever time it's bought him now, like winning one championship. It bought you a full season last year and half of a season this year. That's the leeway that one championship bought for Frank Vogel. So yeah, I guess he's an interchangeable coach and I don't know what it accomplishes if you're the Lakers, but the Lakers problems are more roster based. So there's not much they really can do to fix that because they've already emptied the cupboard of all of their assets, except for Taylor Horton Tucker in a 2024 first round draft pick. So if not for that, then there's nothing you really can do other than just say, maybe firing Vogel will help. I don't know if it will. I don't know if it won't, but they're going to do it anyways. I don't know what it accomplishes, but he's going to get fired. I agree with you. I am surprised that Frank Vogel even made it out of his first year. When I heard they were hiring Jason Kidd as an assistant, I'm thinking in my mind, okay, that's what's going to happen. They're going to fire Vogel at some point midseason, especially when the team starts off slow, and then Jason Kidd is going to get the job. That's how I always saw it playing out in my mind. Didn't happen, and again, Vogel managed to get a championship out of it. When I think about good coaching in the NBA, I would say the biggest, most important things you could do as a coach is just manage your rotations correctly, be able to develop some witty aftertime outplays. That's why I always kind of gave Brad Stevens credit because you saw the coaching element was there. And I also think being able to get, as we talked about before, C players to play like B players and occasionally give you A player output. I think the problem with Brad is he was never get his A players to consistently play like A players when he got A players, all of Kyrie Irving. When it comes to Vogel, he's been able to get his A players to stay within that range. I just don't think he has a lot of A players throughout this roster anymore. I mean, we came into the year thinking the Russell Westbrook was an A player. I would say at this point in his career, he's more of a B minus player to me. About a B minus. LeBron, A minus still. I mean, still an A range, but he's not LeBron James, A plus plus. Might as well round up to infinity type on his grade report. And then obviously Anthony Davis with the injuries. He's been like a C this year, to be honest. Yeah, but Anthony Davis is an A player when healthy, but when healthy with Anthony Davis is the biggest qualifier that you can find in doing analysis because Anthony Davis his nickname is street you're, clothes. You're right. You're right. If I was to grade this, I'd have to put an incomplete. He's, a, he's at the point of the semester in college where the pass no pass deadline is coming up. And at this point, he's thinking about instead of doing it by letter grades, he's going to choose pass no pass on this season. We pass if we win a championship or make a championship and it's a no pass if we don't make it. But even if you no pass, you can still go to the dean at the end of the semester and call it incomplete. But the point being for, for the Lakers... I think Jason Kidd also thought he was going to be the head coach for the Lakers. And after two seasons, 
seasons when they decided that they were going to keep Frank Vogel, Jason Kidd took a better job. And it's not a better job than being coach of the Lakers, but for the next 10 years, there aren't many better head coaching jobs than the Dallas Mavericks. Like this is the equivalent of Josh McDaniels in the NFL. McDaniels was always waiting for like the perfect job and he was turning down interviews with the Browns and he turned down interviews with the Packers and he turned down interviews with, I think it was Tennessee when they fired Mike Malarkey. Josh McDaniels waited for the perfect offer because he knew in his back pocket he had taking over for Bill Belichick waiting in the wing. And then he got that offer with the Colts, which at the time had Andrew Luck. It looked like it was going to be the best job of the next five years to come open in the NFL. Andrew Luck retiring changed the math a little bit on that, but it's still a pretty damn good job to have. And the fact that he turned it down was probably a mistake for McDaniels because he always could have gone back to New England after the fact if it didn't work. It was probably a mistake there, but the point being, Jason Kidd did the same thing. It's like, wait a minute, I could have 35-year-old generational talent and very, very good player Anthony Davis, like Hall of Famer Anthony Davis. I could have that or I can have generational talent for the next 10 seasons in Dallas. And maybe it doesn't work out with Dallas because Luca gets his way. I remember basically the first week Jason Kidd was like, hey, you fat slob, play some defense to Luka Doncic. And maybe Jason Kidd just doesn't work out because Jason Kidd's not a good coach and not a good relationship guy because Jason Kidd's an asshole. But Jason Kidd could have had that job and he ended up taking a better one instead of waiting for Frank Vogel to get fired eventually. Giannis did love him. <laughs> Giannis loved yeah. him for whatever reason, but it's fair. Uh, let's talk about the upcoming schedule for the Lakers and just see where this one might map out. So they play the Pacers tonight. Does Frank Vogel get fired after a game against the Pacers? Uh, if they lose, you can make the argument for it. If they lose the game, you could probably make the argument for Frank Vogel getting fired. But I think the fact that the report leaked out is probably more like they're putting a feeler out to see what people think about it. Because think about it, who benefits from the leak getting out that the Lakers are considering firing Frank Vogel? The Lakers stand to benefit from leaking that not Frank Vogel doesn't benefit from the fact that he's leaking out. He might get fired. So I presume this is being leaked out of the Laker camp or just like a player is doing this because they want to get Frank Vogel fired. But I assume the Lakers are putting out feelers on firing Frank Vogel to see what people would say about it after the magic game. What do you think? Uh, They can't possibly lose to the magic. Not they can't possibly lose that game. They play in Miami this coming Sunday in Miami. You said? In Miami. Oh, is this a road trip? Like, are they in Orlando too? Oh boy, do they have a good road trip coming up here. They play in Miami, at Brooklyn, at Philadelphia, at Charlotte. He will not make it back to Los Angeles. I'll say that. Not sure which one it's going to be, but he's not going to make it back to Los Angeles. I think that that's fair analysis. This is a long road trip. They also play at the Hawks. <laughs> this happens every now and then is that because of COVID, they're putting all of the games together for long road trips because it saves money on flights. Well, we know Frank Vogel may not have job security, but Mike Mayock definitely didn't have job security as the Las Vegas Raiders have made the decision to move off Mayock as their GM. Obviously, they're in the middle of this head coaching surge where I think Jim Harbaugh is still the best candidate they could potentially hire, but the Raiders made the decision that we're going to marry a GM and a coach together on this next hiring cycle. Do you think this was the right move for the Raiders, Kyle? 
Uh, yeah, I think this was probably the right move for the Raiders. I don't really know exactly how things are going to work out for the Raiders because they are a really poorly run organization. But this is kind of like the GM coach thing in reverse where John Gruden hired Mike Mayock. And so when John Gruden goes, Mike Mayock also goes. And this is interesting for a couple reasons, because usually the general manager gets to hire multiple coaches. And in this case, it was reversed because John Gruden had final roster making power. I don't think Mike Mayock ever really got a fair crack as a general manager, but the Raiders probably made the right move because if it was inevitable that Mayock was not going to be the GM for the next three years, then you move on from him and you bring in a GM coach together because this is a situation where if you give Mike Mayock full GM powers, then Mike Mayock gets to presumably hire two coaches in his time. So Mike Mayock would have gotten like eight years as general manager of the Raiders in that level of job security. So yeah, they decided they didn't want him for the next five years. So they fired him. Not sure if it was for better or for worse, but we'll figure that out with due time. It's interesting if they're their idea is to hire Jim Harbaugh. What lasting friendship or guy does Jim trust in the league to name as his general manager? Obviously, this will be the second time, like you mentioned in reverse, hiring the coach first and then hiring the GM to match with him. After three years of evaluation, it's tough to pick apart who was the Gruden guys, who was the Mayock guys. The first draft was kind of ugly when you just consider who was the first selection they took? Cleveland Farrell, who's irrelevant at this point in the Raiders roster. They did get a couple jams, obviously. Josh Jacobs has been great for them when healthy. Max Crosby has been really good for them. Foster Moreau, he's still on the roster. And then Hunter Renfro was still in the fifth round. So the best draft for Mayock was his first draft. But you were talking about this to me, that their 2020 draft was one of the ugliest in NFL history. You want to talk about that? So four of their top five pick were not on the team by the time that they got to a year and a half after the draft. So Henry Ruggs, Damon Arnett, uh, they traded Lynn Bowden without him ever playing a game for the Raiders. He was traded for a fourth round pick during training camp after he was drafted with a third round pick. Uh, and then there was a muse in there somewhere who's no longer on the team. And Brian Edwards was the only one that's still there. He was basically a, uh, a middle of the fourth round draft pick that ended up going to the Vegas Raiders. It's fine as it is, but what's fascinating about that is yes. So that Brian Edwards is the only one still on the team and he's basically like a wide receiver four at this point. So it's super fascinating because the Raiders were the team that uh, I believe when John Gruden was first hired, he got an award at the, I believe something analytics conference. And it was saying that he won an award for making the decision to trade Khalil Mack and trade a Cooper for draft picks. He, he won the award of the year for being the, the most analytically sound guy for trading all those picks. And the thing that we're learning about sports is that what used to be was organizations had smart, concentrated plans with their picks. Now lots of teams do that with picks and they still mess up because at a certain point, you have to have a great plan of development for those picks. The Raiders and the Dolphins are two of the worst run organizations in football over the past 20-ish years. And that's saying a lot because there's a lot of really bad organizations in the NFL. Dolphins haven't won a playoff game since 2000. Raiders haven't won a playoff game since 2002. 
The Raiders have only played in two since 2002. The Dolphins have only played in two since 2000. And the Dolphins essentially got five first round picks for Laramie Tunsil. The Raiders got three firsts for Khalil Mack and Amari Cooper combined. And they did basically nothing with either of them. The Raiders have this one fluky playoff appearance where they didn't belong in the playoffs to show for it. And Miami did not make the playoffs in any of the three years with all of the draft picks that they had. It's really fascinating to see how even bad organizations, when it looks like they have good plans, still find a way to break their plans and still find a way to mess things up. Even if it's, as Brett Musburger calls it, a a carried out hit on John Gruden that the NFL did. But even still, like it is fascinating to see it play out the way that it has for the Raiders and the Dolphins lumped in together, as we talked about the Brian Flores situation last week. And I guess this is, once again, my pitch for why I think Jim Harbaugh would be a good coach for this team. I think that he can maybe scratch the surface of some of these guys that the Raiders have put in his organizations and then he would adopt if he ended up taking that coaching position. Some of these scraps that are left over from the 2021 draft will also be interesting to analyze. Obviously, Alex Leatherwood was thought of as a reach whenever the Raiders selected him where they did and he didn't really live up to his projections until they switched him to the inside, which helped out their offensive line. They turned around that defense with Gus Bradley there at the helm. They do need to make sure that they can bring in another good veteran defensive coordinator that's able to keep that development continuing. Uh, My biggest recommendation, if they do get Harbaugh, is for him to bring the band back together and add Vic Fangio to that staff because I don't think Gus Bradley is going to be one that's going to get retained here. As we also talked about, doesn't seem like Vizfaccio is going to get retained. It seems like the Raiders are just blowing everything totally up and it's just up to Mark Davis now at this point. So if they don't land Harbaugh, is Davis equipped enough to go on the search for the next head coach. I think the best case scenario actually is to let Mark Davis turn it over to a search firm to give a pool of qualified candidates and to actually do a proper and fair interview process in which he hires the most qualified candidate for the job. But we know that billionaire white people, especially billionaire second generation white NFL owners, don't tend to do that. Sometimes they just say, I want to hire the guy on TV and bring back an identity to the organization. Like, Sometimes that happens, but I think Mark Davis should go through a full interview process and choose the most qualified candidate from his interview selection. So maybe they do that. Maybe they don't. I found it interesting that you pitch Jim Harbaugh getting hired and then Harbaugh would hire the general manager. And I would be kind of surprised if they did that, even if they brought in Harbaugh, because even if they hired Harbaugh, I don't think they would give him decision-making power in personnel. I think they would, they would give him a say in personnel, but ultimately I think the decision-making would fall on the general manager. I feel like this hasn't worked out for really anyone in giving the coach from college the say on personnel. Now, I understand that. And I'm not saying necessarily giving him the say in personnel. I'm saying giving him say in who he's going to be partnered with because Jim and Trent Baalke was a terrible pairing in hindsight and fractured the Niners organization when it ended. So I think Jim would probably have some trust issues on who his GM is going into this process. And I think he'd at least like to like the person on just a basic level like the person because I think him and Balky didn't like (laughs) each other. I think they literally wanted to strangle each other at points towards the end of the 2014 season. Whether that's, I don't know, a Lewis Riddick, Adam Peters, one of these guys, I think that relationship is pretty critical to the long-term success because I don't think this should be a four-year ordeal for Jim Harbaugh. I think this should be a 10-year possibility. And the only way to really make that a 10-year, decade-long friendship, co-worker relationship is to be able to just get along with whoever you're sitting next to on draft day.
day. The part I find that being fascinating, though, is I think of it as the idea of if you're hiring someone else, that means you have a power of like being a boss over that person. Usually the employee or the the second in command doesn't necessarily hire the boss. So it feels like if Harbaugh is making that decision there, then Harbaugh is essentially a power over whoever the general manager is. I would just say not necessarily I'm hiring this person, but if Mark Davis was to approach him and say, who would you like to be the GM? You have to at least hear him out as far as top five candidates or giving him a list similar to what the Bengals did with Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase. If you're going to build around this guy, if you're going to offer him probably close to another $100 million deal like he did with Gruden, you might as well ask this guy's opinion going into it because Jim is flexible more than people give him credit for. Look at how he pivoted with this year's Michigan team, bringing in coordinators from the Baltimore Ravens to change around their entire look at their offense. I I think that Jim is willing to adapt to make his teams better. And I think he's willing to adapt behind different personalities, but I think he would at least like the choice given that his last GM coach relationship was one that turned very toxic very quickly. Ultimately, I think that's probably why Jim is not going to be the coach of the Raiders, just because it doesn't seem like that is a match that's going to work out given the state of affairs for that team right now. It's why Miami makes a lot more sense to me. Steven Ross is obviously the Michigan guy, and they have a clearly defined general manager who's going to give Jim Harbaugh the ingredients that he's presumably going to make the stew with, is that they're clearly defined roles there. And again, this is the reason why I don't think that the Harbaugh, as we talked about two weeks ago, I don't think the Harbaugh to the Raiders thing is good for either party. I don't think of Jim Harbaugh as this transcendently great coach. I think Jim Harbaugh inherited a lot of talent on the San Francisco 49ers and was stable enough compared to Mike Singletary, who we know is a terrible coach. And he was stable enough to keep that thing afloat for three seasons until it all did end up falling apart. He's done as good as you can do with the University of Michigan because he is a competent, above average coach. And I think going to the Raiders with not a lot of ingredients to cook with is probably going to be frustrating and ultimately blow up if the players decide that we don't have to listen to you the same way they did with Joe Judge in New York. So again, I don't, and I don't think the Raiders should do the same mistakes they just made again. Like John Gruden getting $100 million was splashy. It was crazy. It was fun making him the second highest paid, well, I guess third highest paid coach in football because David Culley made $22 million last year, but making him the highest paid coach in football or second highest paid only behind Belichick I think Gruden was at the time, but John Gruden essentially has the resume of like Brian Billick and Brian Billick can't get any coaching job in the NFL at this point. It was never clear what made John Gruden special. And so it didn't work out for them. They shouldn't do it again. Counters. One, I think Jim Harbaugh is a better head coach than John Gruden. Two, player yeah. buy-in. Yeah. I think that players will buy into a guy who's been to NFC Championship games, has been to a Super Bowl, has had success pretty much everywhere he's went in his coaching career, and is a former player himself, someone that can relate to them on that level. I think that those are some key factors in getting that player buy-in. As far as the Niners, he inherited talent. I've said this to you before, but I think it's revisionist history to say that the Niners were a great team waiting to happen at that time. I think the coach was the main thing that sparked that team to become a better team. When I think about as a Niners fan in high school, telling my friends about Vernon Davis or telling my friends about Patrick Willis or telling them about Joe Staley, they'd be like, that's great on a six and 10 team. Boo, Niners suck. Well, you're saying the same thing about the Raiders and the Raiders actually went to the playoffs this year. Whether you consider it a fluky thing or not, 
falling into 10 wins is not an easy thing to do in the NFL. So if you could take a team that already has 10 wins and just put in a good, stable head coach like Jim Harbaugh is, then that's enough. That's enough to make you legitimate threats to contend on a yearly basis. If you could get that coach part of it and you might have the quarterback down to a certain extent. If you think that maybe Jim Harbaugh is a B plus level head coach, if he could get Derek Carr to play like a B minus type quarterback, then that's good enough to win anywhere from eight to 12 games on a given year. Oh yeah, I think that's a totally fair analysis. I think Jim Harbaugh going to the Raiders, it doesn't work out in terms of making them great and maybe flames out in three years because people are like, okay, we're not getting better. But again, Jim Harbaugh is a above average coach and he is getting NFL offers again because of resume and because of the fact that he was respectable this year with Michigan and they had that one fun year. But the Raiders as a roster are missing middle of the pack in the AFC with not a huge path to getting better except for getting a better quarterback and maybe slightly improving the defense. Would have said the 2010 Niners were a middle of the pack roster at that point in time too. 2021 Raiders, who knows how good they can be, but I know if you put the right coach in that locker room, it can make a locker room better. It can make talents better. And I think that that's why Jim Harbaugh is the perfect coach for the Las Vegas Raiders. But that's enough of that. We have other things to discuss here. We're not not doing game previews on this pod. That is a YouTube exclusive content. Go ahead and check out our YouTube channel. Again, 30 subscribers away now from hitting that 2000 mark. We have some outstanding guests to break down each one of the divisional round playoff this week. What are we doing on this pod? Well, there are 16 possible Super Bowl scenarios that are left in play with the eight teams remaining. And Kyle and I, we have our top five potential Super Bowl matchups. I'm going to allow my co-host to tell me his fifth ranked possible Super Bowl and we'll compare and contrast here at the end. Kyle, lay the scene for number five for me. Very exciting. This is a classic divisional round weekend type of podcast when you are deciding which are the best playoff matchups. Okay, number five for me is Bills and Bucks. Well, the Bills and Bucks would be fun because, of course, you have Tom Brady and Josh Allen, but Josh Allen, I've been saying for years, is basically Patrick Mahomes, but doing everything slightly worse. So it'd be more fun to watch Patrick Mahomes as a generational talent, and it'd be more fun to watch Aaron Rodgers. But both of these are very much more fun than the alternatives. So Bills and Buccaneers, that is my fifth best option there. Uh, Also, Tampa Bay, really good at stopping the run, but that's not a problem for Buffalo because Buffalo doesn't run the football. My fifth ranked matchup, and maybe there might be a little bit of bias in this one, but a rematch of the 1981 Super Bowl, a rematch of the 1988 Super Bowl, Yes, I am talking about a trilogy fight as I have the Cincinnati Bengals versus the San Francisco 49ers. There's something (laughs) about an old school 80s rematch here. And we saw this game just a couple months ago, Joe Burrow versus the San Francisco 49ers defense. It came down to an overtime thriller with Jimmy Garoppolo on a game winning touchdown drive. And I would love to see this rematch again. There's something about just when Kohlers work together. And I think the Bengals versus the 49ers is my fifth best potential Super Bowl outcome. Kyle, tell me about your fourth rank. All righty. Okay. Number four for me is the Buffalo Bills versus the Green 
Bay Packers. That is my number four matchup for Super Bowl Sunday. I enjoy Aaron Rodgers and this Packers team. It is the most talented in the NFL. May not be the best, but most talented in the NFL. Buffalo's offense is fun. And who doesn't want to see the second best passing offense versus the number one passing defense in the Super Bowl? My number four, I'm going to call this potential matchup the Berman Bowl. The Chris Berman Bowl as there was a scenario in which the San Francisco 49ers and the Buffalo Bills each were in the Super Bowl for seven consecutive seasons, but they never faced each other. But Chris Berman, one of the goats of broadcasting, predicted it for every year in the 90s that the Bills and the 49ers would face off at some point in the Super Bowl. Why not 2022? Yes, I would like to see the San Francisco kid, the Bay Area kid, Josh Allen, versus his former team of fanhood when he was a child, the San Francisco 49ers, and a potential Super Bowl matchup. Number three on this wonderful, wonderful list of Super Bowl matchups is the Kansas City Chiefs versus the Tampa Bay Buccaneers rematch of Super Bowl 55 from last year. Who doesn't love the narrative of Brady and Mahomes, the GOAT and also the greatest winner in the history of sports because Patrick Mahomes is the greatest quarterback to ever pick up a football and Tom Brady's a good winner. So that's my number three. My number three is going to be the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with the greatest winner of all time, as you say, versus the Buffalo Bills. Yes, I just want to see, can Buffalo exercise the demons of Tom Brady past? 33-3 and is the record that Tom Brady holds in his career matchups against the Buffalo Bills. We already saw the Bills exercise one demon with Bill Belichick in the wildcard round. Can they do it with Tom Brady in the Super Bowl? Talk about games we saw during the regular season. Another one that came down to the very end, and I would love to see the rematch on Super Bowl Sunday. My number two Super Bowl matchup is the two best teams in the NFL, the Kansas City Chiefs versus the Green Bay Packers. That is my number two matchup for the Super Bowl because they are super fun offenses and it's super interesting matchup between Aaron Rodgers and Patrick Mahomes, maybe the two greatest quarterbacks to ever pick up a football. It was Aaron Rodgers statistically. Patrick Mahomes is Patrick Mahomes and somehow they have still never played against each other. So let's go. Chiefs, Packers, Legacies will be on the line in that Super Bowl. Kyle, you wanted a Super Bowl rematch? Well, I got one for you. The San Francisco 49ers versus the Kansas City Chiefs as my number two potential Super Bowl matchup. In 2020, the Niners had a hashtag, 2020 Revenge Tour, what turned into the 2020 Rehab Tour as the San Francisco 49ers had a record mark for injuries, had over hundreds of millions of dollars on their injured reserve. And that's why two years later, after a heartbreaking Super Bowl that is marred by 20 to 10 with seven minutes left to go in a Super Bowl celebration on an interception that will not leave my mind. I have to see the rematch. I have to see Patrick Mahomes and the San Francisco 49ers one more time. And that takes my number two spot on potential Super Bowl outcomes. Number one for you, Kyle. This was the easiest one to do, although I love me some Patrick Mahomes and I love me some Aaron Rodgers. This is far and away what I'm rooting for the most on Super Bowl Sunday, which is number one, anyone except the Tennessee Titans. That is my number one Super Bowl matchup. I want anyone to play in the Super Bowl other than the Tennessee Titans. It can be the Chiefs. It can be the Bills. It could be the Cincinnati Bengals even. It'd be weird if it was the Cincinnati Bengals, but let it be anyone other than the team 
team I have said consistently is the sixth best team in the AFC. So my number one Super Bowl matchup is get the bleep out Tennessee Titans. That is my number one chosen Super Bowl matchup. And my number one is the State Farm Bowl. Yes, Aaron Rodgers. Patrick Mahomes, State Farm, this is your way to print money. So yes, I'm pro-capitalist on this one. I am going for the Super Bowl that involves the two generational talents of their respective eras, Aaron Rodgers and Patrick Mahomes. So man, you are still on that Tennessee Titans hater train. It's like, do you have any more haterade left in the cooler, man? Player hater of the year, Kyle Ledbetter. Can't even give anything out for the king. You don't want to see the King Henry on Super Bowl Sunday? No, I don't want Ryan Tannehill in my screen any more than I already have to have Ryan Tannehill on my screen. Wow, are you Adam Gase? Is that why you have such deep-seated hate for Ryan Tannehill? Uh, Remember, I am the person who said in maybe my greatest take ever in 2019 that if the Titans replaced Marcus Mariota with Ryan Tannehill, they would go to the playoffs. And not only did they go to the playoffs, they ended the Patriots dynasty and pulled the greatest upset of the last 10 years in professional football in beating the 14-2 and Baltimore Ravens. I was the Titans guy, and ever since then, I have been a Titans hater because I said I would have franchise tagged Derrick Henry and I would not have re-signed Ryan Tannehill. And... The Tannehill one, okay, fair enough. Derrick Henry, I, I, that hasn't looked quite so good because Derrick Henry might be the greatest running back we have ever seen, any of us, in the history of football. Uh, that would have been a terrible decision on my part to have not brought back Derrick Henry. But yeah, I've been kind of branded the Titans hater now. So yeah, I, I don't I don't want to see the Titans anymore. I want, the, I want the Titans to lose on Sunday so the Titans can get the hell out of here for the season. Okay, well, yeah. I, I will say this. My worst ranked Super Bowl out of the 16 possible outcomes was Tennessee versus the Green Bay Packers. That would be my least enjoyable Super Bowl out of this mix. I did have one Tennessee Titans matchup ranked relatively high, and it's just because I'm a bit of a football historian. I love seeing these old school Super Bowls sometimes come back to life. I did have the Rams and Titans fairly high here because if you remember the highlights from the 1999 Super Bowl, greatest show on turf, Steve McNair down to the one yard line, one hell of a thriller with Jeff Fisher somehow on the sideline. So here in 2022, I think it would be fun to kind of bring it back. I had that one officially as my ninth rank out of 16. Oh, you went all the way to 16. That's cool, actually. I like that idea. You want to hear the rest? Sure, go ahead. Let's get it real quick. Okay, so my sixth rank, so outside my top five, was Tampa Bay versus Kansas City. Just because last year's result was unenjoyable, I think it was one of my least enjoyable Super Bowls in forever. It goes back to the Denver Broncos-Seattle Seahawks Super Bowl in terms of level of enjoyment (laughs) throughout the game. I hate blowouts, and that's what that was. I don't know if this year's outcome would be the same, but I know- No, it would be the Chiefs blowing out the Bucks. So since I hated last year, it may be poorly judged that one this year. Uh, The Rams versus Kansas City was my number seven. And that's just bringing back flashbacks to that crazy Monday night game. Do I think that there's at all possibility of them replicating that? No, but you'd at least have maybe the Matthew Stafford winning the Super Bowl storyline, which might be enjoyable to some. At eight, I had Buffalo versus Green Bay because Josh Allen, Aaron Rodgers, two good quarterback talents. And for Josh Allen, it would be a hallmark type game for him on this come up for his journey as a potential guy to battle Patrick Mahomes in the AFC year after year after year. I think also for the city of Buffalo, let's face it, you have to break that 0-4 streak in the Super Bowl. Any potential Buffalo outcome is a good one for me. I had the Rams versus the Titans at 9, as I mentioned. I had the Rams versus the Bills at 10. Cincinnati versus Tampa Bay at 11. I do like me some Joe Burrow. I do like seeing Joe Burrow on football Sundays, and certainly on Super Bowl Sunday, I think you could bring a little bit of swag to the screen 
there. At 12, I had Cincinnati versus Green Bay. They also had a great game this year, so who knows if they could run that one back. 13 was Tampa Bay versus the Titans. I had that one a little higher because I'm like, eh, Brady Vrabel. They might have some fun back and forth there. Cincinnati versus the Rams. What, Sean McVay versus Zach Taylor? Meh. 15, Tennessee versus San Francisco. It'd be a physical game. I think it'd be a low scoring game. I don't think from an optics perspective, it would be the most fun game. The only level of enjoyment is, of course, for me as a fan. And at 16, like I can mention Tennessee versus Green Bay because we'll get into it on the game previews here, but the Titans don't do a great job at defending the pass. So Janoris Jenkins and Buster Screen versus Aaron Rodgers. That's going to be a long day for the Tennessee Titans. And I mentioned I don't like blowouts on the Super Bowl. I would hate that game just from that perspective. So that's my 16 altogether rank. I know you had a problem with my fifth rank. We want to go back to that one there. Yeah. I, I mean, I get what you're doing there as a 49ers fan and football. You, you seem to be big on the football history when it comes to matchups that are pretty even across the way. And why would you want to, I mean, I know you're a Niners fan, but why would you want to watch the Niners play the Bengals in the Super Bowl? Like that's a game that's usually on wild card weekend on somewhere on NBC at 10 in the morning. No, 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 no. Because <laughs> Joe Burrow, this is going to be a guy that's going to be in the top 10 rankings for the next decade. I would appreciate seeing him get this first crack at a Super Bowl one year removed from an ACL injury. And against the Niners, I think there's just something about those color schemes. They just kind of work together. I think there's something about the fact this would be a trilogy fight in the Super Bowl for these franchises. And then for the 49ers perspective, you get really old school with it and say, okay, so they beat the Dallas Cowboys in this playoff. 1981, they beat the Dallas Cowboys. And then they beat the Bengals to win the Super Bowl. So history repeating itself type thing would be fun for me from a narrative perspective, particularly when talking about potential Super Bowl games. I did get lost in the storytelling of these games too. I can mention, think about Buffalo versus the Buccaneers, Tom Brady versus the Bills. We saw this matchup 36 times in Tom's career. And as I mentioned, that is one monkey that the Bills have to get off their back. Why not this year? That's why I had that as my third rank. I didn't really have too much of a problem with your top five other than the Titans hate there that was egregious. So I, I can't really- <laughs> But that was just, that that was just for entertainment value. And that's why I don't judge you <laughs> so poorly here, but you are fair in the fact that the majority of my Titans games I did have in the bottom tier. Yeah. If, if you're looking for a sixth one here, I guess, I guess my sixth would be, uh, I guess Chiefs Rams, I guess Chiefs Rams would be next on my list. And I think that's just because I, once it gets to a certain point, I, I want the best teams to be the representative champion for a season, because then we have to pretend like Joe Flacco was an important part of history in football, because the greatness of these teams isn't going to last forever. It's why it's so difficult to do this analysis in figuring out how good or how bad certain people are across full careers because we just can't remember everything. It's hard to remember that the New York Giants beat the Green Bay Packers in 2011 in the playoffs, but most people can't tell me who the Giants beat in the next round to get to the Super Bowl. I know you know the answer, but a lot of people can't say who the Giants beat to get to that Super Bowl. And so it's hard to do this analysis. And I like that the representation of the best teams get to the championship because Honestly, the Kansas City Chiefs are the greatest thing we've seen since that Patriots dynasty. And it's really weird that even if you don't just do Super Bowls, like a lot of people can maybe name Super Bowls off the top of their head. But if you do like conference championships, yeah, the Titans might have a chance of making two of the last three conference championships. But also they were never 
as good as that Lamar Jackson 14 and two team. I know they beat them in the playoffs. One of the most shocking upsets of the last 10 years in, in playoff football. And it's weird that the Titans might get two conference championships. And we kind of talk about them as this all time great team. Again, Derek Henry is one of these, I think five or six players that is like an elite quarterback in their ability to change the game. So Derek Henry is not like terrible by any stretch of the imagination of like telling the lore of NFL history. I just think that the best teams deserve the representation at the end of the season so that we can go back in time and say like, hey, the Buffalo Bills were really, really good during this stretch of time. Like not just like Buffalo Bills exercising their demons, like they were an elite team for a longer time than like anyone non-Packers and non-49ers has been in the NFC in the last 15 years. So I find that representation important because if we're going to judge these things 10 years from now, it's important to have the best teams at the end. And it's just more fun. Like everyone's excited for Bills and Chiefs this weekend because it's the best two teams playing each other from the AFC and maybe in the entire league. I think the Packers are probably also right there and Tampa Bay is only slightly behind. But having the four best teams at the end is something I really want to see happen. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, we have some game previews get to so stay tuned for this podcast a lot of nba chatter on here a lot of potential super bowl chatter on here go ahead and check out the youtube channel for all our fantastic guests check out us on social media got some really dank memes we've been dropping lately at slumpbuster podcast for that at slumpbuster pod on twitter of course go ahead and leave a five-star review leave a like on this video comment below your thoughts on the show and stay safe happy and healthy from juju talk sports and Kyle better we will see you next